Good morning. And I want to say happy Thanksgiving uh, to everyone here in North America. For those who are watching outside North America, it was our Thanksgiving holiday this week. And we have, uh, does everybody have something to be thankful for? Yes, a lot to be thankful for, and most importantly, we are thankful for the truth about God and how he runs his his universe and government and the privilege to meet together and talk and share. And I'm I'm personally thankful for all of you, for our friends online, for our supporters who make it possible for us to take this message all over. And we have so many wonderful stories that come into us all the time in emails, and you can see uh, following us on Facebook. I want to say thanks to the, the people at the uh, Vallejo Drive uh, SDA Church in Glendale, where I was last week. Very positive reception uh, there, and we had a really good time. But let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we are thankful for you and to you, for all that you have done to reveal the truth to restore in us your methods for Jesus Christ and his love. We ask that your uh, agencies will be with us today, that we will come to know you more fully and represent you more faithfully. pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number 10 in the uh, quarterly, uh, the book of Romans. And the title this week is Children of the Promise. Children of the Promise. When you hear the title, what comes to mind? Children of the Promise. So ask the question, who are... The children of the promise. Or maybe do you need to ask, what promise? Is this the promise? Genesis 3.15. God speaking. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will, bru- you will strike his heel. If this was the promise, to whom was it promised? To Satan, that he was system, he's promised that his system is not going to survive. And to the whole human race, that a Savior is coming to deliver us. Isn't that the promise? Or is this the promise? Genesis twenty-two eighteen. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That was God speaking to Abraham. Is that the promise? Okay. So, we're talking about children of the promise, it says. What promise? And who are the children of it? So if we take the second one, the one to Abraham, in your seed all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. If this was the promise, then to whom is the blessing promised? To whom? Well, it wasn't to everybody of Abraham's seed. Wasn't the promise to all humanity? In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in your seed. I guess I was referring more to the children. So who are the children of the promise? Isn't the children of the promise all the peoples? All the children of Adam and Eve are promised. What are they promised? Wouldn't it be the promise is to all the children? And I think this is where you're getting. The promise is to all the children. But who become the children of the promise are those who accept the promise and partake of it. Right. Is that what you were trying to say? I think so. Yeah. Let's look at our memory text. Romans 9.18. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Have you heard that before? So what are your understanding? Does this mean it's similar to one of the theological beliefs of Muslims? They believe in something called fatalism. Oh, well, it's God's will. He saves some. He kills others. Who are we to question? That's a very common Muslim belief. Or is it like Calvin? God predetermined some for salvation? And God predetermined some for damnation? Who are we to question? Is that what this means? Or is it, in fact, contextually, just the opposite? It's exactly opposite that. What's the context? Paul is arguing or dialoguing or trying to persuade a group of racists and bigots who don't want non-Jews to be saved, who believe only biological descendants of Abraham have been blessed by God, and that God, and he's trying to argue and say, but God wants to save everyone, including the Gentiles, including the Gentiles into the promise. So Paul is saying, who are you Jews to argue with God and say he can't save these people? He can save whomever he wants. If you want evidence for that, a little bit earlier, 
in the same chapter of Romans 9, we just read verse 18, here's verses 6 through 8 of the same chapter. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. He's making the point. Those people who have difficulty with mercy, they do have difficulty with the hardened part. Okay? And we're going to come to the hardened part in Monday's lesson, I think, when we get to... Or, yeah, we're going to get to the hardened part somewhere in our lesson today. We're going to unpack what that means, hardening. How's the heart hardened? Um, so God, after Adam and Eve sinned, immediately began his plan to save and heal just a few humans descended from, from Abraham. Or to save and heal the whole human race. Yeah. And uh, ultimately secures universe unless the Savior was promised. God never made the promise of salvation exclusive to a specific ethnic group. In Romans 19.13, Paul quotes Malachi. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Does God, d- does God not love Esau? Does God from his heart not love all humans? Is it talking about the feeling or attitude of God Or is it talking about the function of love? Can you love someone in your heart, but have that person close themselves off to you so that you are obstructed from showing them love, hindered in your ability to to let your love flow into their lives, to actively love them? Can you still love them, but not be able to love them? Can that happen? Sure. Yes. See, love is functional. It's operational. Thus, Jacob opened his heart and received God's love and was changed by God's love, and God was able to love Jacob. But while God had love in his heart for Esau, Esau did not trust God, did not open his heart to God, and thus did not receive the experience of God's love. Thus, God was not able to love Esau functionally. Now, where's the hate come in? Well, if you had a child who closed their heart to you and wouldn't let you love them, would you hate it? Not the child. I'd hate the fact that they would. That's what I mean. Would you hate that experience? Would you hate the fact your child has hardened their heart against you? And this is what God hates. He hates it when his children harden their heart against him. Not the child. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says, God needed a missionary people to evangelize a world steeped in paganism, darkness, and idolatry. He chose the Israelites and revealed himself to them. He planned that they would become a model nation and thus attract others to the true God. It was God's purpose that by the revelation of his character through Israel, the world should be drawn unto him. Through the teaching of the sacrificial service, Christ was to be uplifted before the nations and all who would look unto him should live. As the number of Israel increased, they were to enlarge their borders until the kingdom should embrace the world. Do you agree with that? I do too. I think that was exactly right. That was God's plan for them to reveal him so beautifully that it would draw all people to his designs and methods and and the world was preparing. The world was to be prepared for the advent of the Messiah. What happened? Did Israel succeed? What happened that they failed? Did they teach the truth of God's character, methods, principles of love, and light in the world so that they recognized the Savior when he appeared? Or did something else happen instead? What did they teach instead? Exclusiveness. Okay. What did they teach about God instead? (laughs) Yes, they did do that. No question. What kind of God did they teach instead? By implication, it was an exclusive hate so, did they not teach, essentially, paganism? Yeah. Isn't that what they taught? In fact, weren't they many years overtly in paganism? Overtly. Ahab and many of the kings overtly in paganism. And so many decades, if not centuries, they overtly practiced and taught paganism. 
What is it the core features? Let's talk, let's walk through this. What are the core features that separate pagan gods from the true God? And I'm going to list some features and I want you to ask, would any of the following as taught by their adherents, not in actuality, because we know there are no real actual other gods. They're all just pretenders. So in actuality, there is no God that possesses any abilities. But as taught by their adherents, do any of these attributes or qualities separate the, the attributes of a pagan god from the true god? Power. Is, or is it true that both the true god and pagan gods are represented as having power? Representatives, they have no power. That's what I said. In reality, pagan gods have no power, but how is it taught? Do pagan worshipers say, our gods are powerless? Yeah, yeah. No. No. Okay? So again, so can you, can you, what, what I'm going to go through here, the, the logic trail I want to break down is, when you hear a version of God taught, what elements do you need to look for to say whether this is a, a, a true version of God or a pagan version of God? And so would a version of God that says God's powerful help you determine whether that's a true version or a fake version? No. No, no. no both teach that. How about creatorship? Do pagan gods, some of them, I mean, there's a lot of pagan gods, but are there pagan gods that are taught to be the creator? Yes. Yes, there are. So because somebody tells you we worship the creator God, does that mean you're not worshiping one of the pagan creator gods? Doesn't necessarily mean that. That quality alone. How about life? That life is is brought about by the God. God God is the source of life. That's That's taught in both. Um, justice, that they're both, that, that, that our gods are the source of, 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 of justice. If we have some injustice, we can take it to our God and He will ultimately bring about justice. They both teach that. Uh, protection. Our gods will protect us. Blessings. Blessings come from our God. Healing. We have sickness. We can pray to our God and we can experience healing. Both. Punishment of sin. Fighting evil, standing up for us to fight evil, dying for your followers. Do you remember who Baal was? The Mesopotamian god that Ahab and Jezebel worshipped. Jezebel, Jezebel. Um, well, Baal was the son of El, who was the god of creation and weather, and brought the lightning and rain and, and harvest. Who brought life to the earth? Who who? Um, fought the great serpent Leviathan, who fought the god of death named Moat. In his battle with death, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the land. That's Baal. Not all gods, false gods, but Baal did. Baal dies and rises again. Do any of those things help you? No. This is the point. And there's other, by the way, called mystery religions besides Baal worship, in which the, there's a dying, rising Savior in, in pagan worship. There's more than that one. So what is the core identifying feature that pagan gods hold that the true God does not? The point that always separates them. You're getting there. Yes, yes, yes. Pagan gods have imposed rules or laws that require punishment for disobedience and thus the pagan god always requires sacrifice or offerings to be offered to them in order to propitiate their wrath and secure the blessing that's paganism but isn't that what israel's israel turned out to think about their sacrifices that's what i just said yes this is the point they were teaching paganism. So at the, at, prior to Jesus coming to earth, you look at the history of paganism, there's a time in Israel's history when they were overtly worshiping Baal and Moloch and Ashtoreth and Dagon and some of these other gods they went into. Okay, But at the time of Jesus, were they overtly worshiping these other gods? No. Here, when Jesus finally comes in human form, born in Bethlehem, this is the first time really in Israel's history we have a group of people who appear from all external purposes to be following the script and worshiping the true God. But were they worshiping the true God, or, as Linda was suggesting, were they still in paganism? 
Well, here's a historic quote from the Seventh-day Adventist Church out of a book called Prophets and Kings, page 685. See if you agree with it. While God has desired to teach men that from his own love comes the gift which reconciles them to himself, the arch enemy of mankind has endeavored to represent God as one who delights in their destruction. Thus, the sacrifices and ordinance designed of heaven to reveal divine love have been perverted to serve as means whereby sinners have vainly hoped to propitiate with gifts and good works the wrath of an offended God. Which way did you think Israel believed about the sacrifices and ordinances? That this was a representation of self-sacrificing love for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten. Or is this a sacrifice we needed to do so God won't hurt us to propitiate his wrath? I'm going to suggest to you this was the problem that prevented them from evangelizing the world. This, this idea corrupted their entire religion from representing the truth of God's character of love and his methods to heal and restore to a system that ultimately functioned no different than Baal worship. And if you disagree, Jesus in John 8.44 said to the Jewish leaders in his day, quote, you belong to your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desire. Who was he saying they were worshiping? In other places, you know the quotes where Jesus confronted them multiple places. It was very clear they were not worshiping the God of heaven. What about Christianity today? Let's bring the lesson home. Could Christianity today, and let's, let's, let's be clear, the Jewish people were God's people, called by God, purposed by God for evangelizing the world. Let's be clear. But they got corrupted with this one idea such that they failed. Could Christianity today, who are called God's people, called to evangelize the world, could we be caught in a similar form of idolatry, externally observing the proper rituals, putting the right verbiage to our attestations of God, but holding constructs of him that he's an imposer of law, the source of inflicted punishment, justice requires, and and, and that his wrath must be appeased or propitiated in some way, lest he punish us, such that we are ultimately practicing paganism. Is that possible? How many Christians require the blood of a sinless human sacrifice be offered to God to propitiate for our sins? Do you like it when I say it that way? No. But that's what commonly is taught. Christ, a sinless human sacrifice, had to shed his blood to propitiate the Father for our sins. Am I making this up? Well, this is uh, just a couple of the sources, three, three sources and then one that's not in the book, The God-Shaped Heart. First one's Roman Catholic theology. What did Christ's suffering and death actually accomplish that allowed the Father to provide the human race with salvation? Scripture teaches only that Christ became a propitiation, a sin offering, a sacrifice for sins. Essentially, this means that Christ, because he was guiltless, sin-free, and in favor with God, could offer himself up as a means of persuading God to relent of his angry wrath against the sins of mankind. Anger against sin shows the personal side of God, and sin is a personal offense against God. God is personally offended by sin, and thus he needs to be personally appeased in order to offer a personal forgiveness. In keeping with his divine principles, his personal nature, and the magnitude of the sins of men, the only thing that that God would allow to appease him was the suffering and death of the sinless representative of mankind, namely Christ. Do you hear that? That's propitiation. That's Baal worship. How about this one? This is evangelical theology. This was over 100 evangelical theologians got together and formed a a consensus statement about the essentials of Christianity and Christian belief. This is one of those consensus statements. We affirm that the atonement of Christ, by which in his obedience he offered a perfect sacrifice, propitiating the Father by paying for our sins and satisfying divine justice on behalf of our behalf, according to God's eternal plan, is an essential element of the gospel. I'm going to tell you, it's a lie. This is the wine of Babylon that has infected Christianity that we are called as a people at the end of time to reject. Here's Pentecostal theology. The word propitiation means properly, signifies the turning away of wrath by a sacrifice. Thus it signifies appeasement. 
the consistent Bible view is that the sin of man has incurred the wrath of God. That wrath is averted only by Christ's atoning offering. From this standpoint, his saving work is properly called propitiation. Do you remember that quote I read earlier, Prophets and Kings? Vainly hope to propitiate with offerings and sacrifices the wrath of an offended God. That's, that's paganism. Here's Seventh-day Adventist theology. And I'm going to read to you uh, this quote out of a book called The Cross of Christ. And, oh, about seven years ago, we had some differences of opinion with certain theological leaders in the community. And this book was held up as the standard to which we needed to adhere. And we were actually, I was actually given a copy, and we were, was to read it, and we had some very nice and cordial and polite conversations with those who held this view. But this is a view that's commonly held by many. Leon Morris writes in God's, if God's wrath is regarded as a very real factor so that the sinner is exposed to its severity, then the removal of the wrath will be an important part of our understanding of salvation. Of course, if we diminish the part played by divine wrath, we shall not find it necessary to think seriously of propitiation. If people are to be forgiven, then the fact, then the fact of that wrath must be taken into consideration. It does not fade away by being given some other name or regarded as another, as an impersonal process. In other words, God's wrath must be propitiated or turned away from the sinner. That was one of Christ's self-sacrifice, aims of Christ's self-sacrifice on the cross. This is paganism. Modern day Baal worship. And I told you who Baal was. I went through the elements. This is why Malachi prophesied before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah must come again. The message of Elijah, if the Lord is like this, worship him. If he's like Baal, if the Lord is like this, worship him. Who will you worship? Okay, This call is supposed to go out so that people have a clear understanding that this historic view of an angry God who imposes rules, who's a source of inflicted pain and punishment, who we must offer the blood of a human sacrifice lest he kill us, is a lie. It needs to be rejected. This is out of uh, a book called Faith I Live By. Again, one of the founders of the Adventist Church wrote this more than 100 years ago. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false god as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshiping the true God as revealed in his word, in Christ, in nature? Pause. Design law. In nature. Or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in his place? God is a God of truth. Justice and mercy are the attributes of his throne. He is a God of love, of pity, and tender compassion. Thus he is represented in his Son, our Savior. He is a God of patience and long-suffering. If such is the being whom we adore and to whose character we seek to assimilate, we are worshiping the true God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. So, how is it that religious people come to worship a punishing God who requires a sacrifice, not to pour his wrath out upon them? The root, I'm going to tell you, the root always stems back. And it's so deeply embedded, they don't question it, they don't even see it. It's understood to be true. It's a universal truth. Why question it? And the root is God's law functions like human law, system of rules, and justice requires punishment. That universal, quote, accepted truth is the root. And all the negative distortions about God are the, are the fruits that come from that. Monday's lesson, it's about the elected. When you hear about the elected of God, <clears throat> what does the idea of election in the context of Bible salvation mean to you? Chosen. Selected. Selected. Chosen. You're honored more than others. Honored more than others. Exclusive? No. Exclusive Selected. Are all elected? Yes. Could, this be, could they be looked at as a like a phase three trial? I mean, they've been selected to demonstrate something to uh, the effectiveness of the cure, so to speak. And instead of demonstrating that, they all went off program and did some, their own thing. That's true. I don't. I agree. Does that? Does, how does that fit under the idea of election? 
Who are all, are all human beings elected? God elects everybody, but everybody doesn't elect God. I've heard it stated that way sometimes. Think about these comments. This is out of a book called Conflict and Courage. See if you what you think. Esau and Jacob had alike been instructed in the knowledge of God. And both were free to walk in his commandments and to receive his favor. But they had not both chosen to do this. The two brothers had walked in different ways. And their paths could would continue to diverge more and more widely. There was no arbitrary choice on the part of God by which Esau was shut out from the blessings of salvation. The gifts of his grace through Christ are free to all. There is no election but one's own by which any man may perish. Every soul is elected who will work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. He is elected who will put on the armor and fight the good faith. He is elected who will watch into prayer and who will search the scriptures and flee from temptation. He is elected who will have faith continually and who will be obedient to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The provisions, the provisions of redemption are free to all. The results of redemption will be enjoyed by those who have complied with the conditions. Do you agree or disagree? Okay. Any, any, agree. you agree? Other, others? Do you see design law components in this? Do you see design law? This is not an arbitrary system. This is God provides remedy or solution or cure available for all, but people must choose to partake, to participate. Why must people choose to partake and participate? Why is that a requirement? Freedom. Because of the law of, of, of liberty and the law of love. Love only exists in the atmosphere of freedom. And that ultimately results in what for the individual? What does God ultimately want from his people? Doesn't he want their all, absolute love and trust? Can you get that by threatening? No. Does God have power? Does he have power, knowledge, and ability that if he wanted to, and we know he wouldn't, but if he wanted to, he could reach in instantly and, and, and re- rewrite your entire database so that you are just like Adam and Eden in the beginning. But if he does that, are you still you? You're not you anymore. The only way to retain your unique individuality, your unique identity is by providing everything necessary for healing, restoration, regeneration, but leave you free to voluntarily participate, choose, and apply in conjunction with the Spirit working in your life. See, you have the choice. God provides the means and the power and the solution. But without your choice, your individuality would be erased. My understanding of the law of liberty would be Torah law. When you say that, can you describe the function of the law? How does it work? Well, the function of the law of liberty would be Torah law. How does it work functionally? Describe the function. It means that if I live by faith, I have faith in the law of the Torah. Righteousness, you know, right, doing right. I reflect the law. So the law of liberty is one of those constants like gravity. Yeah. You don't have to believe in gravity for gravity to work in your life. Yeah, nobody has to believe in the law. They just, it's always- and the law of liberty we don't have to believe in, but it still works. It's a constant. It never changes. And the law of liberty, when you violate gravity, there are predictable consequences. When you violate the law of liberty, there are predictable consequences. So if, for instance, you were a young man were to say to a woman that he was dating, um, marry me or I'll kill you. He's violating liberty. As soon as he does, love is being damaged. A desire to rebel is being instilled in the heart. This is predictable, testable, and you can never get love by violating liberty. It always destroys love. I seek to find people who believe that the law of liberty is the same thing as the Torah law given to Moses for Israel. Okay. So, functionally, what was given to Moses in Israel was was a codification of those design principles, it would be kind of like this. When Newton wrote down the, the law of gravity and he wrote down the equations in the law of gravity, he did not establish the law of gravity. It was already there. 
But when he wrote it down, many people would have gone, there's a law of gravity? I never thought of such a thing. It came to me as something completely unthought of. It's just how things work. That's how things are. The Torah law is like that. It's simply a codification of God's design for his universe and how he built his universe to run. For people who forgot and didn't know. It was not new to Moses. It was not new to Moses. And so these design law components are built into this. You cannot retain yourself if an authoritarian sovereign uses power to change you without your voluntary, willful participation. And we, we can do that in lesser degrees. Have you seen cult leaders or, or people who, who do programming of other people? People who have been in, in uh, some type of uh, uh, environment where they're being mistreated, abused, and have their sleep and, and threats. And in other words, they can be, their individuality can be damaged and eroded and destroyed. They can be mindless, thoughtless people. You know what I'm talking about, right? So power over, coercion of others, does not retain individuality. It destroys it over time. Third paragraph. In the end, it was no arbitrary choice on the part of God, not some divine decree by which Esau was shut out from salvation. The gifts of his grace through Christ are free to all. We've all been elected to salvation, not lost. It gives quotes of Ephesians and Second Peter. It's our own choice, choices, not God's, that keep us from the promise of eternal life in Christ. Jesus died for every human being, yet God has set forth in his word the conditions upon which every soul will be elected to eternal life. Faith in Christ, which leads the justified sinner to obedience. The lesson says salvation is, how did it say this? Oh, first, first off, I want to say salvation is absolutely free and available to all human beings. I agree with that. But the lesson said um, we've all been elected to be saved, not lost. Is salvation being offered to everyone freely? Yes. yes. Is that the same thing as all of us being elected to salvation? I, I, I don't quite see it that way uh, myself. I, I see it being that salvation being offered to all, but it's only experienced by those who elect to partake. <laughs> They're the elected. In other words, all are not elected because all don't exercise their power of choice to trust God, to partake of what he's provided, to accept him as their savior, even though it's freely offered and they're available to do so. In the book Christian Education, I read the following. That was interesting. See what you think. Page 51. He, who, he is a Christian who aims to reach the highest attainments for the purpose of doing others good. Knowledge harmoniously blended with a Christ-like character will make a person truly a light to the world. God works with human effort. All those who give all diligence to make their calling and election sure will feel that a superficial knowledge will not fit them for positions of usefulness. Education balanced by a solid religious experience fits the child of God to do his appointed work steadily, firmly, understandingly. If one is learned of Jesus, the greatest educator the world has ever known, he will not only have a symmetrical Christian character, but a mind trained to effectual labor. Minds that are quick to discern will go deep beneath the surface. Has your Christian experience been, strengthen, been strengthening your mind? It says in Hebrews 5.14, the mature are those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. Has your Christian experience taught you to think, taught you to reason, taught you to plumb the depths so you can discern the realities? Or, or do we stay stuck in ritual? Do we stay stuck in symbolism? Do we stay stuck in declarations? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We don't think, we don't ask questions. We have faith, we don't need evidence. Does it shut down thinking, or does it cause you to become a deep thinker to understand the realities of God so that you become what Jesus said in John 15, 15 to his disciples? I no longer call you slaves. Rather, I call you friends because slaves don't understand their master's business. Think of the mindset of a slave. What do you want me to do, master? Just tell me what to do. I'll do it. I don't want to mess up. I, 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 I'm not going to ask any questions. You just tell me. I'll do it. Obedience without thought. The obedience of a well-trained dog. 
That's not what God wants. He wants comprehension. He wants understanding. Life eternal, says in John 17, this is life eternal. That they might obey everything you say for me to do. That they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and now sent. Tuesday's lesson, memory verse, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is out of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways. Let me start over because I keep reading it wrong. For my, for, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can you give an example of how God's ways are higher than human ways? Yeah. He designed DNA. He didn't read it. He designed it. Okay. So his capacity to build, when you say creation, let's be clear here, space, time, energy, matter, life. Complexity. Everything he's built. He's built reality. Now, what kind of laws does reality operate upon? They're constants. They never change. So here, let's see if this is an example of God's ways being higher than our ways. And this is Jesus speaking, Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What do you hear? Would this be an example of God's ways being higher than our ways? Yes. What do you hear? Yeah, a loving God, a just God. He treats us all the same. What kind of law did you hear? Did you hear law in that at all? Anybody hear law in that? Ah. Remember he said uh, when they asked him about, about keeping the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. All law of the prophets hang on this. But did you see examples that he gave? He actually gave, this is where Jesus is a brilliant teacher. He always used the integrative evidence-based approach when he says, here, love your neighbor. And he says, love your, he's, he's, you know, love your neighbor is part of the Old Testament. But then he expands and says, here's, here's, here's uh, God's design in, in nature. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends the rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Now, does the sun discriminate? It's only going to shine on the righteous. It won't shine on the evil. The rain will only rain in the fields of the righteous. It won't rain in the fields of the evil. No discrimination here. These are, these are constants. These are how reality works. Human laws don't work this way. Human laws are always discriminatory. Always, always, always have some arbitrariness to them. Their applications are always arbitrary. You can always find loopholes to them. You can always find exceptions to them. If you have a, a, a Protestant Jew and a Muslim all stand on the Empire State Building and they jump off together, <laughs> gravity does not treat them differently. It's a constant. It doesn't matter their faith in what gravity does to them. When you understand God's laws this way, that's the constants of the universe as God built it. The law of love being the principle of giving, other-centeredness upon which life is built. Remember the example I've given before? Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide, and the plants give oxygen back to you. A never-ending circle of giving upon which life is built. God built it that way. That's the law of love built into nature. There's many other examples. But what kind of laws do humans make? Rules with no consequence that we must threaten punishment for. And many, much of Christianity sadly teaches that God's all functions just like ours. And thus they have a God who's the source of pain and suffering and punishment from which we now create theologies to hide us and protect us from our creator. We don't pray like David of old. Search me and see the wicked way in me, O God. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. That was David's prayer. We pray, Jesus, plead your blood to the Father. Cover me with your righteousness. Apply your blood to my record book so when the Father sees me, he won't see me. Don't let him look at me. And another way God's different from uh, he's above us or his way of thinking is above us is how vengeance works. 
because we say vengeance is get even. You know, they deserve punishment, we're getting them. But God's vengeance is curing them. He has a vengeance on their incurable wound. Can you remember a text in Isaiah? And we'll remove their dross and purify them. Uh Yes, I think it's Isaiah 1. I'm not sure, though. Somewhere in Isaiah 1. You find it, you bring it back to our attention. Okay, Okay, we're going to move on. But yes, I agree. It's like doctors don't take vengeance on sick patients. Doctors take vengeance on disease. They want to eradicate the infection. They want to eradicate the virus. They want to destroy the cancer. They do not want to destroy the patient. That's design law stuff. So let's talk about this idea of, in the lesson, still in Romans 9, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. How do you understand the passage about God hardening Pharaoh's heart? So let's maybe we should look at some scripture. And 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 we need to bring harmony to scripture. Scripture has to harmonize, right? So let's let's look at scripture. Bible description number one. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. This is Exodus chapter seven, verse three and four. God speaking to Moses. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my div- divisions and my people. Uh, the Israelites, and then Exodus chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord said to Moses. That's description number one, from Scripture. And we believe the Scriptures are inspired, right? How about scripture number, uh, description number two? Neutral. Pharaoh's heart became hardened. Exodus chapter seven thirteen. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen. Attributed to no one, just a fact. 7.14, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to listen. 7.22, Pharaoh's heart becomes hard, became hard. He would not listen. And then description number three, Pharaoh's heart was hardened by Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. This is Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was, there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord said. Exodus 8.32, But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to the people. In Exodus 9, 34 and 35, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard. Now, which is the true one? Which is the inspired one? Well, we will gain insight from another story in the Old Testament about the story of the Philistines who captured the Ark of the Covenant in battle and took it before their god, Dagon. If you remember after they took it before Dagon, the next morning, when they came into their temple, where was Dagon? On the floor, On the floor in front of the Ark. And what did they do? They picked him back up and they continued to worship him. They come in the next day and where's Dagon? And he's on the floor and what this time? Hands and head were broken off. And what did they do? They put him back up, glued him together, and they made the, por- the portion of the temple where his head fell a holy place. <laughs> okay, that's what they did. And then what happened? They began getting some type of tumors, the Bible describes, uh, some, type, uh, some type of sickness on their body. And then they became very worried and concerned. What shall we do? How will we deal with this? Um, so they call the council to try to decide what to do. And here's the discussion, 1 Samuel 6, 4 through 6. The Philistines asked, what guild offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of Philistine rulers, um, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying your country and pay honor to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When he treated them harshly, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on with their way? The wise man asked the leaders, why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaohs? Pharaoh did. What were the Philistines doing? What did God do? God did something in this context of the Philistines. The Philistines did something. As a result, they say, why do you harden your hearts? What is similar do you see happening there that happened with Pharaoh? So, have any of you heard the term evidence-based thinking? (laughs) 
there's evidence-based thinking and there's proclamation or declaration-based thinking. Declaration-based thinking is someone that you revere in authority of some sort, whether it's a doctor who's a medical authority, a pastor or a pope who's an ecclesiastical authority, somebody in authority makes a declaration and you surrender your thinking and say, well, the, the authority says it, I'll believe it. That's, a, that's, that's declaration-based thinking. Somebody declared it. The Bible said it, I believe it. It's an authority, I don't question, I accept. Evidence-based thinking is what happened. What actually transpired? What occurred here? And what was the result of that? And why? And so what happened here? They brought the Ark of the Covenant into their temple. Dagon falls flat. The next morning it's flat. Okay. What is being revealed here? Is there some evidence being revealed that these worshipers of Dagon should like, uh, okay, our God is so powerful that we've got to get some people in here and pick him up and put him back on his thing. Okay. That's how powerful he is. He can't pick himself up. Is there some evidence in that? How about the next day, his hands and head are broken off before the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Is there some evidence being, this God is so weak, he's just crumbled. He's crumbling before, before the Ark, okay? Should, should, was it designed to show them their God is powerless? What were the plagues of Egypt designed to teach the Egyptians? Their gods are powerless. Let's give some more examples from other places in Scripture. Jesus is being arrested. As he's being arrested, a flash of divinity is is released as they come to arrest him. They just see a little glimpse of his true self. And remember, they fall down. They can't handle the glory. They fall down as heaven. And Peter sees his opportunity, whips out the sword, cuts off an ear. No, he wasn't aiming at the ear. The guy was dodging. Right? You think he was really aiming for the ear? He was aiming for the head. Okay? But he got the ear. Jesus has put up your sword. Now, now, now all these guys here, watch. Imagine this. Put yourself there. Jesus picks up the ear. The guy's bleeding. You know how head wounds bleed, right? And he takes the ear, sticks up there, and shh, the ear's t- What? And what do they do? Find his hands. Let's go crucify him. Were they allowing evidence to influence them? No. No, evident. So do you think their hearts got softer then or just a little bit harder? So God provides evidence that the Egyptian gods are fake gods. The Philistine gods are fake gods. Ten plagues. They have no power. And God was acting in both of these countries to reveal that he's the only true God and that they've been deceived with these false gods. But then God leaves them. Just like the Philistines. Why do you harden your heart? Leaves them free to accept the evidence, the truth. Or reject the evidence. That's their choice. God provided the evidence. What happens when you have truth presented to you and you reject it? What happens in your heart, in your mind? Ah, okay. So they would not repent and humble themselves, thus they rejected the truth and thereby hardened their hearts. God's role in Egypt was to present the truth to which Pharaoh had to decide how he would respond. If no truth had been presented to Pharaoh, his heart would not have been as hardened as it had gotten by rejecting all that truth. If that's the case, so you see the harmony, the beautiful harmony of Scripture. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by presenting truth and evidence, truth and evidence, truth and evidence, and bringing him to decision points. Pharaoh hardened his own heart by rejecting all the evidence that had he accepted would have brought him to a renewed heart. But it didn't bring him to a renewed heart. It hardened his heart, a heart of stone, by rejecting truth. So we can see that if God didn't bring the truth, his heart would not have hardened as it did. But God was not the cause of the hardening. Pharaoh rejected truth. So you might ask, well, why did God present the truth to Pharaoh when he, in his foreknowledge, knew Pharaoh would reject it and thus experience a hardening of heart? Why would he do that to Pharaoh? As an example... Let me ask you this. Even though Pharaoh was going to reject the truth, was there any other avenue that God could use besides presenting truth and love that was possible to set him free and save him? John 8.32, you will know the truth, and the truth will. Can God set us free without truth? So even though he knew he would reject it, would he deny Pharaoh the opportunity? 
to be set free. It was mercy and love bringing Pharaoh truth to save Pharaoh, to set him free, to heal his heart. But Pharaoh rejected it over and over and over again. So he didn't bring it simply as an example, but it was used as an example for sure. He did it because he also loved Pharaoh. He wanted Pharaoh. What would have happened if Pharaoh would have really come to worship the true God? Think think of the cascade of events there. Okay. Yes. Yeah, just what you're saying reminds me of Romans 2, starting in verse 4. Uh, Or do you despise the goodness... um, despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. God wanted to bring Pharaoh to repentance. He wanted to bring everyone to repentance by showing his power that you're worshiping nothing. Hey, you should worship me, meaning them where they're at. Then the next verse, a response to those who reject God's goodness, it says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, right? Impenitence means not repentance. Right, right. Goodness leads to repentance, yep. so they're rejecting the goodness, which leads to the hardening of their heart. So it's just simply rejecting God's goodness, which is the hardening of it, just what you're saying. So I just think Paul does a good job in summarizing it. Thank you for that. I think, yeah, I didn't, that's brilliant. That's exactly right. Yes. I've been taught a long time ago that, gee, that God knew he was going to deny everything, that Pharaoh was going to deny everything, that God's sovereignty and continue to think that he himself was a God. And that God was just showing him these things to kind of cover his face. Like, well, I tried because he was had a plan that, like, sneaky, he was going to destroy Egypt anyway. That's how I was taught. And I remember thinking very much that that just sounded so wrong, that God would be going after somebody, like kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, I mean, the Bible doesn't exactly show that they had a choice to repent, but I'm sure they did. So... He, on the flip side of the coin, was produced over and over again examples of God's um, power over what normally would kill people, like lions and so on. Fire. Well, <clears throat> finally, he made him like an animal for seven years until he finally realized, would say, you're right. And instead of hardening his heart, he sent out a whole proclamation throughout his entire empire, which was essentially the world almost saying, this is the right God. This is what happened to me. And I confess that he is the, you know, ruler of the universe. He is, uh, he can do anything. So again, so I love all these because what God, God is a source of truth and love. He presents the truth. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And he presents truth in love and then leaves us free to decide. But that decision has consequence. Yes. What opportunity was Judas given to be saved when Jesus told him to go take care of your business? Thank you for that, because I was going to bring up Judas. It was in my mind. Judas is a perfect example. Did Jesus long for Judas' conversion and salvation? And did Jesus do everything possible, including getting on his knees and washing his dirty feet to reach him? Yes, he absolutely did. So Judas hardened his own heart, but he was he was there. He saw the miracles. He saw the walking on the water. He saw. I mean, he saw everything that the rest of them saw. All that evidence was presented to him. Evidence, evidence, evidence. Christ working personally with him. The stories, the teaching, washing his own feet. All this he saw. But that evidence did not persuade him. Judas rejected it. Even as he excused him from the room, he gave him a cover. Yes. Jesus did not expose him. Even He he was protecting his reputation even. And and, and how did Judas end? And that's another object lesson for what sin does. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. These are Bible quotes, by the way. Okay. Which is just the opposite of the imperial law that people teach. If you disobey and you don't get legal payment, God will be the source of death who will torture and kill you. That's not Bible. That's pagan. That's the pagan stuff. That's infected our church and Christianity. So, yes, Judas was absolutely longed over by Christ, and he wanted him to come. And he had every opportunity, but he rejected them all, hardening his own heart. Yes. Well, this is the text you were, we were talking about earlier, Isaiah 1, starting with 24. Uh, ah, I will get relief. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, this is God saying, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your iniquities. I will restore your judges as in the days of old, 
your counselors, as at the beginning, afterwards you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So that, will be, Zion will be redeemed with justice. So there you go. The vengeance, again, is against the evil that he wants to take and remove it from us and cleanse and restore us, not against the people. Yes? I've, I've been dealing a lot with the, with the idea that um, guilt seems to be a big part of what some people regard as, as the original sin. And if you feel that you, as well as others, cannot escape guilt, that this makes you all the same, okay, then that adds a feature of, of uh, hopelessness. So when you say guilt, two things come to mind. Guilt is the experience, emotional guilt. Guilt is an illegal, guilty person who's legally condemned because they're guilty of a crime. Okay, and so when you said that, which one were you referring to? The legal guilt? Because that's the original sin guilt. We're all legally guilty under God's law and condemned to death. And so we're on death row legally by God, and that's why we must take actions to remove us from death row. And that, of course, is not true. I'm thinking that, that the guilt also can refer to just the, the inescapable um, feature of selfishness that we as human beings have. So if you, if you connect the word or the concept of guilt with your natural selfishness. Well, I wish I had time to go into guilt. I, I, I really, I have another point I want to make. But I will tell you, guilt is a, is a, guilt to your soul is like pain to your body. And when you reach out to touch a hot stove and you feel pain, yeah. this is not punishment and it's not bad for you. The pain causes you to remove your hand so you minimize the damage. Leprosy, which is a metaphor in Bible for sin, destroys pain fibers so that when you touch the hot stove, you don't feel the pain and you don't pull it away until you smell the burning flesh and there's much more damage. So the guilt for people who are really sensitive with, with, with um, their, their uh, sense of touch they will feel the heat before they actually ever get burned and they'll pull back. So your conscience is designed to help you feel the, 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 the wrongness of sin and pull back. But if you do it and you feel guilty, that is designed to cause you to stop the sinful behavior before you sear your conscience and ruin your soul. So there's an aspect of that. I don't have time to go into pain syndromes and false guilt because there's really another important point I want to make in the lesson. Um, but that's, that's, I think, the, the healthy part of how we understand how guilt works in a sinful world. Um, so do we see the harmony between the hardening and the hardening and the hardening, the three different versions? We see how it all harmonizes. So the lesson talks about becoming a people of God, and that's what we were talking about earlier, people of God. Who are the people of the promise? I want to say, who are the people of God today? And this is what I want to finish with. Who are the people of God today? Revelation twelve seventeen, describing the end of time. Then the dragon was enraged with the woman, woman, the righteous woman, representative of a righteous church or the righteous people of God, uh, and went off to make war against the remnant or the rest of her offspring, the end time group, the remnant, the end of time, who those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the group that Satan hates. Now, what would it mean to obey the commandments? The Jews 2,000 years ago who crucified Christ won him off by sunset to keep the Sabbath. Yes, they did. So is commandment keeping the same as Sabbath keeping? It is not. Okay? It is not. You can keep the Sabbath and not be a commandment keeper in this group. Um, this refers to those who have the law written on their heart, the new covenant, both in Jeremiah and then quoted in Hebrews, I will write my law on your hearts and minds, and no longer will fellow tell his brother to know the Lord will all know me. It's a, it's, a, it's a heart transformation with God's design laws as the motivations to our heart again. Thus they live in harmony with God's principles of love and truth and practice freedom. These are the Sabbath keepers, or the commandment keepers, keeping his design laws and how they live like Christ lived. What about the testimony of Jesus? This group not only has their hearts renewed, so they live in harmony with God and his design laws, but they give the same testimony about God that Jesus gave. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If we're not presenting God in the way Jesus presented him, if we're not giving that testimony, what Jesus said in John 16, 26, this is Jesus speaking now, I will not pray the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself. If instead we have a God where we have Jesus as our intercessor in heaven, praying the Father, my blood, my blood, in our behalf, and trying to influence him to assuage or propitiate his wrath, we are not giving the testimony of Jesus. We're not in this group. 
So those who teach the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience, and uh, those who don't keep it, God will be required to punish. Or that the Jesus was a blood sacrifice offered to pay our sins to a wrathful God or a law. They are not the remnant people of God. And that's going to be a shock to a lot of Seventh-day Adventists, I'm going to tell you. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are an amazing God of truth, God of love, God who has constructed his universe with free, sentient beings that you designed in your image to practice your methods to live in harmony with your laws, your designs, your principles, that we're free. But we're not free in sin, Lord. Sin slaves, enslaves us. We're only free in Christ. And so we ask that your spirit will take the victory of Christ and reproduce it in our hearts and minds. Write it on the tablets of our hearts. That we get new desires, new motives, that we live free from fear, that we don't seek always to promote self, that we seek instead to promote you and your kingdom, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.